0: Hi guys, welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm your host, Harry. Today, we're covering the events of July 11th to the 23rd on the Eastern Front, three notes before we get into it. One, this episode's content for Army Group North will be a bit shorter than usual, which is partially due to the sector being a bit quiet in relative terms, but more so the fact that Army Group South and especially Army Group Center see a lot of vital action that I feel the need to cover in more detail. Second, I've been describing German corps made up of motorized infantry and tank divisions simply as Army Corps, just as I would with infantry units. From here on out, I'll be describing them as Panzer Corps. I, I figure it's easier to understand. Lastly, I'm experimenting with format, so this week we'll be covering military actions, strictly land-based military actions, in the first portion, and then political, economic, and strategic dimensions in the second half or so. With that said, let's get into it. At this point, Group North had taken Skulls. The leading units of Panzer Group 4, the 41st and 56th Panzer Corps, had positioned themselves at the head of the offensive the 41st in northern direction, and the 56th facing towards the west. Soviet resistance in the area had been battered by last week's fighting, while reinforcements were being sent to Luga and Leningrad, not the immediate front line. The 56th Corps, under Erich von Manstein, smashed through light resistance to take Porkov on the 11th, continuing to breeze through weak Soviet forces. The fast advance led the 56th Corps to expose its right flank. The 10th Army Corps under the 16th Army was supposed to protect them, but simply couldn't keep up. Manstein felt safe doing this since there were few Soviet units on this flank. But the value of Manstein's advances on this flank was also limited due to its narrowness. In the southern portion of the sector, that portion south of the 56th Panzer Corps, the 16th Army was engaged in a full throated battle with the Soviet 22nd Army. The 22nd had rooted itself deeply in the Stalin line and was proving quite difficult to break. The marshy terrain in the area, in combination with stiff Soviet resistance and a lack of armor, frustrated traditional German tactics. Any advances were pushing rear Army forces back, not destroying them. The 50th Army Corps, positioned on the very southern edge of the sector, was slowly making its way through. Further to the north, the 2nd Army Corps was pushing back Soviet forces. The area between the 56th and 41st Panzer Corps saw relatively little action. It was held only sparsely by minimal German forces. Turning to the 41st Panzer Corps, it it dives to the north, beating off any resistance. By the end of July 14th, it had nearly half the distance to Leningrad and was only a few dozen kilometers from Narva, which in turn is extremely close to the Baltic Sea. If the 41st were able to reach the Baltic, they would have fully cut off Soviet forces in Estonia. But the 41st was in no position to close its trap, nor was the 56th in a position to advance towards Luga. Regardless of how bold their commanders were, fanatical Soviet assaults and lack of infantry held up both Panzer Corps. Soviet forces managed to exploit this vulnerability, striking the rear of the 56th Army Corps' 8th Panzer Division on July 15th. On the 16th, continued Soviet attacks cut off and encircled the 8th Panzer Division. After a few days of heavy fighting, the 8th Panzer Division managed to break out, with aid from the 3rd SS Panzer Division Totenkopf. I mean the Death Head. And frankly, you have to think that with names like that, literally Death Head, how did these guys ever think they were the good guys? Anyway. Despite the failure to destroy the 8th Panzer Division, this operation, the brainchild of Northwestern Front Chief of Staff Nikolai Vatudin, was a bright spot. Red Army forces from both infantry and tank units were able to coordinate and take advantage of the German weakness. Vatutin was able to organize artillery and air support for his forces. The end result, although not a full success, was a tactical victory, demonstrating that Soviet forces were far from defeated and had both the power and skill for significant operations. While the 8th Panzer Division was fighting for its life, the 41st Panzer Corps was staving off ferocious attacks by Red Army troops. Further west, this period, roughly the 15th to the 18th of July, saw the 26th and 38th German Army Corps push deeply into Estonia against the Soviet 10th and 11th Rifle Corps. Increasingly, the 41st and 56th Panzer Corps were becoming separated. By the end of the 18th of July, the 41st Corps was a little more than 100km from Leningrad, while the 56th was much further to the south, in the Novgorod direction. Concentrating both corps in one place for a push against Leningrad was simply not viable. Doing this would have left the southern portion of the sector massively exposed and spread thin, and this at a time when the southern portion was becoming more and more important due to the situation in the central sector. In fact, it was seeming more and more likely that any thrust toward Leningrad might have to be on without the 56th Panzer Corps. From the 19th to the 23rd, activity was a bit limited. In Estonia, the 26th Army Corps was closing an encirclement of the 11th Rifle Corps, backing it against Lake Pepys. On the left flank of the 34th Panzer Corps, the 38th Army Corps was pushing Soviet forces to the northwest. The 41st Panzer Corps, its right flank and the gap between the 41st and 56th Panzer Corps saw no significant activity. The 56th, recovering from the blow dealt to it in the past few days, was counterattacking between the 10th Mechanized Corps on the left and the 22nd Rifle Corps on the right. This advance has proven successful and threatened to reach Lake Illman, which would split the northern and southern portions of the front. In that southern portion of the front, the 16th Army was achieving a broad but moderate advance, forcing Soviet units back while not destroying them. That pretty much wraps up our description of Army Group North. As I said, it's a bit short, but there's some really important stuff, so we're going to get on to that. Moving south, last episode of the Army Group Center finished off the Minsk and Bialystok pockets and then advanced towards Smolensk. They now sought to cross the Dnieper, then capture Smolensk, hoping to encircle large Soviet units in the area. If successfully done, they could rapidly approach Moscow. As of the 11th, the vast majority of infantry corps are still in the Minsk area, with the front lines manned mainly, in some cases only, by Panzer forces. Hermann Third Panzer Group was split, Its 57th Panzer Corps was actually far to the west of the main drive, holding the extreme left flank of Army Group Center. Haas' 39th Panzer Corps was on the front line, in the area of Vitebsk. Stationed between the two, slightly west of Vitebsk, was the 56th Panzer Corps, shifted from its original assignment against Leningrad to help out in the center. Heinz-Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group was also split. The majority of it, the 46th and 47th Panzer Corps, were in the center of the sector, north of Mogilev and south of Orsha. His remaining corps, the 24th, was holding position south of Mogilev. Meanwhile, Soviet forces were concentrated to the west of Smolensk, where the 5th and 7th Mechanized Corps had attempted and failed a counterattack last week. The 20th Mechanized Corps was holding Mogilev. From the 10th to the 13th, Guderian's 47th and 24th Panzer Corps attempted to encircle the 20th Mechanized Corps at Mogilev. They crossed the Dnieper early on and fought through Soviet resistance to create and expand bridgeheads. Despite these successes, they were unable to close the trap, with the 4th and 20th Rifle Corps holding position between the two German anvils. In the face of this determined resistance, Guderian decided to bypass Soviet forces in Mogulis, leaving them for the infantry to finish off. In the center of the sector, the 46th and 39th Panzer Corps were trying to surround large Soviet forces, including three rifle corps and two mechanized corps, the 5th and the 7th. They made significant gains, particularly the 39th, which faced comparatively light resistance. The 39th was given freedom of action by the 56th Panzer Corps, which assumed the duties of the 39th Panzer Corps, forcing back the outgunned 25th Soviet Rifle Corps. I know I'm saying corps a lot, just it's a problem for me too. We're doing what we can. Air power proved decisive at several points in these days. Weeks of constant action and unrelenting, although ineffectual, Soviet counterattacks had managed to exhaust the men and supplies of the 2nd Panzer Group, and they were running dangerously low on ammunition. Close air support and bombers were frequently used to make up for this. Meanwhile, some army corps were near the front, where they would begin to cover the flanks of the Panzer Corps and enable concerted assaults. These assaults were a massive problem for Timoshenko, uh, at this point the commander of the front. His plan to halt the German advances on the Dnieper had been foiled, and many of his most powerful units in the area were in danger of encirclement. In response, he sped up preparations for a series of counterattacks. His primary goals were the destruction of the spearhead panzer corps and the stabilization of the front. If at all possible, he wanted to see the elimination of German bridgeheads over the Dnieper. The 22nd and 19th Armies were to strike the flanks of the German advance at Vitebsk, while the 16th and 20th Armies would strike south to encircle the 46th and 47th Panzer Corps east of Orsha. Finally, the 13th, 21st, and 4th Armies, positioned in the southern portion of the sector, would strike north to encircle the 24th Panzer Corps and recapture Bob- Bobusk, hoping to relieve Soviet forces in Mogilev. Along the front, attacks were to begin on July 13th. In case you couldn't tell... This plan was ridiculous. No part of it was reasonable. The 16th Army wasn't even fully assembled. The 4th and 13th Armies had been shredded in the past few weeks, and their divisions numbered only a few thousand men each. The northern flank of that attack on the Teps had no armor, despite the presence of the 56th and 57th Panzer Corps in the area. Even as Timoshenko was issuing orders for this plan, it was being made impossible. The 57th Panzer Corps was forcing the 22nd Army back, and had effectively split its two rifle corps in half. Meanwhile, the 39th Panzer Corps was blowing apart the 19th Army, and by the end of the 13th, it was less than 20 kilometers from Smolensk. Further to the south, the 47th Panzer Corps had nearly cut off the 20th Mechanized and 61st Rifle Corps. The only exception was the 21st Army, which did see some temporary success in threatening German positions around Bobruisk in the far, far south of the sector. But it was no position to follow up on them. Between July 13th and 16th, Timoshenko continued to persist in this counteroffensive, which was almost entirely imaginary by this point. On the German side, the 57th Panzer Corps pressed hard on the gap between the 51st and 62nd Rifle Corps, segmenting the two and forcing both back in a desperate fighting retreat. The 56th pushed north, exploiting the gap between the 52nd and 25th Rifle Corps. The 39th Panzer Corps fought through Soviet resistance, pushing forward and then hooking around to take Yartsevo, a town east of Smolensk, by July 15th. At the same time, the 46th Panzer Corps struck to the south, capturing Smolensk proper and enveloping most of the 16th, 19th, and 20th armies on three sides. The Stavko ordered these armies to defend ferociously. The 47th and 24th Panzer Corps closed the encirclement at Mogilev, trapping the 20th Mechanized and 61st Rifle Corps. On the 17th, several objectives stuck out to German commanders. The first priority needed to be finalized in the encirclement of the 16th, 19th, and 20th armies. A secondary priority was eliminating the 20th Mechanized and 61st Rifle Corps encircled in Mogilev. However, just like at Minsk, the infantry was not there to hold and eliminate these encirclements. We've been talking about the infantry playing catch-up since the very first episode, and nothing has changed. There was plenty of infantry on the northern flank of Army Group Center, and there was some on the southern flank. But most of the infantry army corps traveling to the central sector were maybe a third of the way between Minsk and Smolensk. To give an example, the Eighth Army Corps was maybe four days from Orsha, and that's if it forced its troops all day every day. There was only a single army corps in Mogilev, only one in Orsha with another one of Vitebsk. All this meant that containing and reducing these encirclements would have to be done by the armor. Meanwhile, the Soviets were feverishly patching up the front line, reinforcing and planning. Almost all of the German commanders understood the need to contain and destroy Soviet forces in and around Smolensk. Guderian, bolder than most, still directed the 10th Panzer Division under the 46th Panzer Corps to cross the Desna River and establish a a bridgehead at Yelna. But Guderian soon realized that he did not have the forces to continue the advance and contain the 16th Army near Smolensk. The following few days saw major hesitation, as panzer forces consolidated their positions and waited for infantry to catch up. And as the infantry caught up, the 47th Panzer Corps shifted to the north to hold the right flank of the potential encirclement, relieving the 46th Panzer Corps, who began to push east, hoping to grab some ground and bypass the massive Soviet forces. As the infantry club on the northern end, Soviet forces had to retreat. German infantry also began to gain position around Mogilev. In the meantime, Moscow acted decisively to reinforce and reorganize her armies. Four additional armies, the 24th, 28th, 29th, and 30th, were deploying, where they were to establish multi echelon defensive lines protecting the approaches to Moscow. Some of these armies were also to conduct large offensives in the Smolensk area. These were all armies that had been created after Barbarossa had begun, a tremendous feat when you consider what they had been through. Timoshenko's pleas had also convinced the Stavka, the high command, to form two additional armies, the 31st and 32nd. By July 19th, the position of the 16th, 19th, and 20th armies was critical as German forces steadily closed the encirclement. The 20th Army, located in the eastern portion of the Bulge, fought viciously to hold open a gap and maintain a link between the eastern and western portions of the Bulge, as the 47th Panzer Corps attempted to split the two. Beginning on July 21st, the newly arrived 24th, 28th, 29th, and 30th armies began a huge counteroffensive. These fresh armies slammed into Soviet forces from positions near Belgi, striking southwards towards the Arzevon. These armies had been assembled and shipped in just a few days, and had lacked training and good officers. Their goals, spread throughout the region, were to encircle and destroy German forces to the northeast and southeast of Smolensk. Simultaneously, the 16th and 20th armies were to conduct attacks, hoping to break out and link up with the larger offensive. This massive offensive began piecemeal and achieved little. They did tie up significant German strength, but captured little territory. These armies, made of soldiers who often had not even completed basic training, and led by officers who themselves lacked the most basic skills, ran headlong in the Panzer formations. As the 23rd comes to a close, we leave Army Group Center here, locked in intense combat with Soviet armies that now numbered in the dozens and showed no signs of letting up. Last episode saw Army Group South mop up encirclements in the Dubno-Brody area. Having been defeated in the border regions, the Red Army retreated to positions along the Stalin Line. A small German group broke through and advanced very near to Kiev, but were unable to take it. Offensives far to the south began between Romanian and Soviet troops along their border, with minimal Axis gains. This mix of gains near Kiev and intense Soviet resistance sparked a division between field commanders and high command with regards to priorities for Army group south. Many field commanders were emboldened by progress near Kiev as well as the attraction of such a prestigious city and wanted to focus their attacks there. High command, as old well as Hitler, were relatively unconcerned about taking Kiev, though the name didn't really mean much to them, and they prioritized clearing Soviet forces west of the Dnieper before crossing the river themselves. This represented a deep divide between those commanders focused on tactical and operational level victories, and the high command which tended to favor strategic goals. Meanwhile, Soviet commanders were focused on encircling and destroying German Panzer forces in the bulge protruding east toward Kiev, which currently held all of Panzer Group 1. On the 10th and 11th of July, three mechanized corps, alongside civil rifle corps, struck the northern flank of the German armored in advance, guarded by the infantry of the 6th Army. At the same time, Soviet forces south of the 1st Panzer Corps struck north. These attacks hoped to encircle and destroy German forces in the bulge west of Kiev. Sloppily conducted, they proved unsuccessful. From the 12th to the 14th, the spearhead 3rd Panzer Corps pushed further to the east, near to Kiev itself. The 14th and 48th Panzer Corps pushed on the right flank of the bulge, to the southeast the 14th exploited the gap between the 6th Rifle Corps and 16th Mechanized Corps, trying to reduce the exposure of the 3rd Panzer Corps. At least, that's what the Soviets thought the purpose was. In reality, this was the first stage of a southern pivot, with the goal of encircling and destroying densely packed Red Army troops in the center of the section, west of the Dnieper. Meanwhile, the 48th moved south from Zitomir to defend the extreme right flank against the 15th, 16th, and 4th Mechanized Corps, To the north, the 17th and 29th Army Corps counterattacked on the rear left flank, driving Soviet forces back. South of the Panzer Corps, German forces lacked armor, meaning that assaults only managed to compress Red army defenders, gradually forcing them to the south. On the extreme southern end of the sector, poorly equipped Romanian forces saw very little success against Soviet troops. Mikhail Kirponos, commander of the Southwestern Front, realized on July 15th that the main focus of the German Panzer forces had shifted from Kiev. The 14th and 28th Panzer Corps had both converged on the southeast portion of the bulge, striking the gap between the 15th and 16th Mechanized Corps and the 6th Rifle Corps. Without any good options to counterattack, and in an awkward position, Kirponos issued orders for Soviet forces in the central bulge to withdraw to positions across the Dnieper. He sent this on July 17th, although at the time he did not have Stavka approval. On July 18th, the German 11th Army, stationed on the southern edge of the center bulge, began assaulting Soviet forces. By this point, German intentions were clear even to the Stavka back in Moscow. However, rather than approving Kuponis' idea of a withdrawal to to Behind the Dnieper, However... Rather than approving Cipronus' idea of a withdrawal to behind in the 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 Stavka allowed for a less extensive retreat to a align 100 kilometers west of the river. They ordered Ivan Tuliana to send his 2nd Mechanized Corps to Uman, near the German spearhead on the right flank of the bulge. But the 2nd Mechanized Corps had been protecting the extreme left flank, and well before they reached their destination, the 48th Panzer Corps had already preempted them. Moreover, the Stavka's moderate withdrawal had been rendered moot, as German advances captured prospective layers of defense on the 18th. In the extreme south, Romanian forces were taking advantage of the Soviet withdrawal to make a general advance. On July 17th, the German 54th Corps seized Chisinau. Chisinau had been a major Romanian city until the USSR annexed the area in June of 1940. For that last year, it had been the capital of the Moldovan SSR. By July 21st, German forces had conducted a three-sided envelopment of large parts of the 6th, 12th, and 18th Armies. Von Kleist Panzer Corps were dangerously near Oman, and the 2nd Mechanized Corps were still en route. Cuioponus directed the 26th Army to attack and contain the 3rd and 14th Panzer Corps, but were unable to prevent the 48th Panzer Corps from reaching behind Soviet forces. Only the arrival of the 2nd Mechanized Corps prevented a complete encirclement. By the end of the 23rd, the exhausted 6th, 12th, and 18th armies urgently needed to withdraw before they were completely trapped. I haven't been able to find a detailed enough source to give you specifics about the air war in the same way I have the ground war. So if you found one, let me know. But until then, we're going to have to wait until some of the major battles like Moscow and Leningrad and Kiev before we can really get into the nitty gritty. Until then, here's an overview. During this period, Red Army Air Forces were reorganized. Air corps were eliminated and air divisions and regiments were shrunk to increase flexibility. VVS forces all along the front fought doggedly, especially in the central sector, where they hoped to inhibit German advances. Like on the ground, the strength of their resistance increased week on week, especially if German strength decreased. In many places, including the Northwestern Front, the Soviets were able to put up more aircraft in this period than they had the first week of the war, despite all the losses they had sustained. German bombers struck Moscow for the first time on July 21st. Alexander Wirth, who was in Moscow at this time, found Soviet anti air defense impressive, at least in Moscow. The city reportedly had a three layered system that forced most German planes to turn back before they reached their target. He cites 15 planes out of 200 actually breaking through anti-air defenses, but that comes from his memory. In any case, damage was light. Raids became common after this. Looking at this period on a strategic basis, Germany's main flaw becomes plain to see here. The Third Reich simply did not have enough resources in men, fuel, guns, railway cars, tanks, planes, or anything to conduct this war for a long period they had dedicated almost all of their available forces to a quick knockout blow against the USSR. In the face of stiff Soviet resistance, they proved unable to win, but they were being just successful enough to engage themselves. Now, what do I mean by this? It was becoming increasingly clear to everyone that Army Group Center was going to advance significantly further than Army Group's North or South if the situation was allowed to progress and this is particularly visible as, resi- as resistance stiffened up north. If allowed to continue, the flanks of Army Group Center would be at extreme risk for counterattack and encirclement. This concern led Hitler to advocate for diverting one or both of Army Group Centers two Panzer Groups to conduct supporting attacks to the north or south. On the other hand, some leaders in Army Group Center wanted to keep going towards Moscow come hell or high water and there was a growing faction supporting a shift towards Ukraine, in particular, for its industry and resources. And while new ideas were being proposed, the old problem of logistics was reaching a desperate level. For the infantry divisions, they moved at roughly the same pace as the horse-drawn logistics. But the panzer divisions relied on much rarer motorized supply trains. Never plentiful to begin with, their trucks were breaking down left and right, falling victim to Soviet roads and Soviet partisans. At this point, the former, the roads, was much more dangerous than the latter, the partisans. On July 10th, Quartermaster General Eduard Wagner noted that supply trains were suffering average losses of 25% by the time they reached their destination. In previous episodes, I've talked about logistics and logistics problem as a danger on the horizon, a danger to come. Well, it's here now. On July 16th, Joachim Lemelson, commander of the 47th Panzer Corps, informed High Command that his 18th Panzer Division was no longer fully combat ready, as its combat losses had not been replaced. Pre-war estimates had predicted this much. They had predicted that a German advance of this size, at this speed and over this much territory would quickly exhaust German efforts. But it was hoped that the use of Soviet rail lines and rail cars would relieve this. But Stalin's July 3rd speech, which had implored Soviet citizens to not leave the enemy with, and I quote, a single engine, a single railway car, not a single pound of grain or a gallon of fuel, unquote, had been taken to heart. Whether done by retreating soldiers or loyal civilians, German forces often found bridges blown, fields empty, and rail lines unusable. On the Soviet side, their basic strategy remained the same. stall for time. Well, kind of. They were organizing these defenses, and they obviously hoped they would be successful, but most of the real military men realized that these would not work. But it was a matter of buying time for true defenses to be organized in Moscow and Leningrad and Kiev. All this meant stubborn defenses, the last man, the last bullet, counterattacking just as slow the Nazi advance, and delaying actions. But the Soviets were getting much better at this. Nearly a month of constant attacks had worn the Germans down, while some, a cadre of newly experienced Soviet troops, along with the more common waves of fresh armies, had crashed in the German spearheads. They were taking heavy heavy casualties, but they were slowing the German advance to a crawl. At the same time, Moscow realized that its organizational structure was unmanageable and that the Red Army lacked enough competent officers to command large units. Mechanized corps had proven themselves unwieldy and too tank heavy and were abolished in favor of smaller tank divisions. Rifle corps were largely phased out and the number of rifle divisions within armies were reduced. Like we mentioned for the Red Air Force, air corps were abolished and aviation divisions were downsized. On my end, this will almost certainly make my job harder when I have to say the 243rd Rifle Division instead of the 14th Rifle Corps, but that's how it is. Despite these positive changes, Stalin's paranoia and micromanagement also reared their head. On July 17th, he reestablished the position of political commissar. Commissars were political officers, responsible for the dissemination of propaganda and the political indoctrination of soldiers. They shared a co-equal status with their military commander, meaning that the commissar could contradict the unit's leader. Keep in mind, the commissar has minimal military experience. This addition, meant to ensure the political reliability and loyalty of the Red Army, was a largely unnecessary complication. German forces were more likely to report resistance to death by Red Army soldiers than surrendering en masse without firing a shot. We're wrapping up the episode at this point, but I think it's important to explain how the Red Army was be able to create and deploy so many new armies so quickly. Pre-war Soviet theory had estimated that in an all-out war of this scale, the army would need to be completely replaced every four to eight months, and at least in the context of Barbarossa, this actually proved pretty accurate if you look at the numbers. In anticipation of this, the 1938 Universal Military Service Law expanded the age range for reservists secondary schools also incorporated basic military training. The end result was that by 1941, there were over 14 million men in the USSR with some level of military training. By the end of June, 5.3 million reservists had been called for active service, a number as large as the entire Red Army pre-Barbarossa. With these, Stavka was able to form 13 new armies by the end of July. This was additionally made possible by the Red Army's increased ability to create an emphasis placed on the creation of fresh armies, as compared to the Wehrmacht. In part, this was due to significant German force being tied down in occupation. This was additionally made possible by the Red Army's increased ability to create, and the increased emphasis placed on the creation of reserve forces, reserve armies, especially as compared to the Wehrmacht. In part, this was due to significant German forces being tied up in the occupations of occupied territories. Greece, Yugoslavia, Poland, France, the Low Countries, Norway, and Denmark. Collectively, this requires at least a million men, 300,000 alone in the portion of Poland under occupation by the so-called general government. Even considering this, if we look at the order of battle for Operation Barbarossa, the Red Army had far more extensive reserves on a front level and high command level. Even the smallest front had at least a corps or corps equivalent in reserve, with larger fronts having the equivalent of entire armies held back for reserves. The western front had four rifle and two mechanized corps, while the southwestern front had nearly as many in reserve. Stavka reserves were massive, including 11 rifle and three mechanized corps arranged in six armies. These were the armies that were now fighting viciously at Smolensk and were the only thing holding German forces back from being at the gates of Moscow. German efforts, by comparison, were simply not possible. German reserves were primarily held at the Army and Corps level, with relatively small reserves held by Army Groups or by the OKH, the the Army High Command for Germany. Moreover, many of these reserves were still in transit when combat started. The OKH reserve for Army Group South represented about two Army Corps, but two-thirds of these were not in position on June 22nd. Worse, motorized or panzer reserves were sparse at the panzer group level and more or less non existent as held by the OKH. German efforts at training and raising and keeping large reserves, or even in the frontline troops, were complicated by their economic and demographic situation. Germany was attempting to seal a large army, navy, and air force capable of holding out and winning against the UK and the USSR, and occupying all its territories while also having as large an economic base as possible and being self-sufficient in terms of agriculture. Germany's population, large as it was, was simply not large enough to accomplish all of these things simultaneously. Resources were limited, chief among them manpower. The same men that worked in the factories had to serve in the military, Since so many of Germany's campaigns had been short, this had not been a significant problem. But if the war in the USSR stretched much longer, production would severely fall. Nor were the Nazis willing to employ women in large numbers, like the British War or the Americans would show themselves to be. Or the USSR for that matter. All this meant that Germany simply could not create enough divisions for frontline service, let alone larger reserves. And as casualties amount for the Germans, this will become increasingly apparent. For the Soviets, on the economic front, the evacuation of industry and workers was being organized. Plans for the transfer of machinery and specialists from the Western Soviet Union to the Urals and Central Asia, among other areas, was well underway. Interestingly, American intelligence reports indicate that such transfers had begun, at least on some level, in late 1940 and early 1941. On one hand, this was a natural progression of previous economic plans to develop the eastern portion of the country and shift the economic center of power eastwards, at least a bit. On the other hand, the rapidness of this transfer in late 1940 early 1941 suggests that perhaps Stalin, or at least the Soviet government as a whole, was not entirely in denial about the possibility of a German invasion. Finally, although the show is based around the Eastern Front, it would be incomplete if we didn't discuss relevant matters abroad. On July 12, the Anglo-Soviet agreement was signed. Both signatories pledged not to make a separate peace with Germany, ensuring that the Nazis would need to defeat both powers at the same time. It also opened the door for shipments of equipment to Soviet troops. At the same time, Germany was attempting to bring Japan into the war against the USSR, but they were reluctant. Among the Japanese army, many did support a thrust into the far eastern USSR, but after Soviet victories at Lake Kassan and Kalkin Gol, a non-aggression treaty was signed in April 1941. Hitler had hoped that initial German victories would convince Japan to join in, but Japan was currently tied up in what had just become a four-year war against China with no end in sight, and was now considering an invasion of Southeast Asia against Britain and potentially the United States they had little interest in a war against the Soviets. Feels a bit odd to end the episode talking about Japan and a podcast so explicitly about the Eastern Front, but here we are. I actually have some drama quote-unquote if you want to call it that to talk about, but if you don't want to listen to that, consider this the end of the episode. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at apocalypseintheeast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next time. On to our passes for drama. I doubt any of you are big enough nerds to be digging around in my sources, but if you did and googled the authors, you might find one there Werner Haupt. Unfortunately, I did not do the same until quite recently. Mr. Haupt, despite writing good descriptions of military actions on the Eastern Front, was an adherent and propagator of the myth of clean Wehrmacht. What that basically means is that he believed that the Wehrmacht, the German armed forces, was innocent of major or systemic atrocities. Adherence to this myth, and it is a myth, believed that the military conducted itself professionally and according to the laws of warfare, and that atrocities were only committed by the SS and other paramilitary political groups. Some of you might have been taught this. It is categorically false. The army, Navy, and Air Force of the Third Reich were intimately involved in the atrocities of the Nazis, including the Holocaust, crimes against POWs, and all other crimes against humanity that Germany committed during the war. They participated in these in a mix of ways, both direct and tangentially. I will make an episode on this at some point, but let it suffice for now to say that clean Wehrmacht is wrong and dangerous. It's also wrong, like I said. I thought briefly about discarding that source, but I never used Hopped as a resource on war crime, so his description of strictly military actions should be good to use. If you've listened this far, thanks. Unfortunately, that really does do it for this episode. I've made a document for my sources, because there are a lot of them, and there's going to be more, so it felt kind of clunky to put it in the description of the episode, so I've linked that in the description. So check that out if you're interested. Until next time, I'm Harry. Have a good new year, and I'll talk to you later.